This is the BBC. Hi, I am not Paul Lewis. Very sorry. I am Steve Bougea. And I'm Aisha Thomas-Smith. The Moneybox podcast is on its summer holiday, but fear not. For the next four weeks, we'll be here to keep you company. Our brand new podcast is called Economics with Subtitles, and it's for people who maybe want to know a bit more about economics, but have been put off by all the jargon and the boring economists and the men in suits telling you to stop buying stuff that you love. We're here to explain the basics so that you can make up your own mind when you watch the news, read the paper or get into a heated debate with your friends. And we hope you like it. Hello, welcome to Economics with Subtitles. Your everyday guide to economics and why you should care. I'm Aisha Thomas-Smith. She presents podcasts about economics and I'm Steve Bougea. Steve has a degree in economics and is also a stand-up comedian. Apparently. Hey, I am. Just asked the 10 people I did a gig to last night. This is the series that takes back control of economics. Translating all the jargon so that your eyes need never glaze over again when you hear the E word. This week, it's all about how we measure the economy. We'll be looking at why you're actually helping out the government if you take drugs. Why babysitting for your little siblings should be counted towards our country's prosperity. And why endless growth might not be such a good thing. As I keep saying, bigger is not always better. Mm -hmm. We are starting with the story of the biggest seizure of Class A drugs in UK history. It was a sunny day in Gartkosh, Scotland, and John McGowan, a senior investigator at the National Crime Agency, thought it was just a typical day at work. I was sat in my office just doing the usual stuff when I got a phone call from my colleagues down in London telling me that there was a vessel, which was a tug, which the French believed it was carrying a large quantity of cocaine. So the French had given them a bit of information about where the tug had been, but essentially they had to look out for a pretty tiny boat floating around in a big ocean. Yeah, you hear people talking about the uh, proverbial need on a haystack. Well, this was it. First, they sent out a plane a fixed-wing propeller aircraft, which could fly in below the clouds and come in low without drawing too much attention to itself. Then they sent in the big guns. From the west, I could send a Royal Navy warship, the HMS Somerset, which is a frigate, and I was able to send a broader force cutter from the east, and they could act in a pincer movement to trap the vessel and track it before we boarded it. So you've got this huge warship equipped with very large guns that had been busy doing NATO war exercises and a big border patrol ship chasing down this small, tiny little tugboat, which is totally oblivious to all this activity going on. They're quite happily sailing along when all of a sudden over the horizon comes steaming a warship, a cutter and three ribs. <laughs> wow, I bet that gave him a bit of a shock. I would think so, yeah. So, John McGowan sent out ribs, that's speedboats to you and me, and they boarded the tiny tugboat to bring them back to shore and arrest them. But now they've got to find the drugs, and they don't have much time. So I've got the famous 24 hours in which to either uh, charge them or release them, which meant I had to until 11 o'clock on the Friday night to come up with the evidence to charge them with an offence. Um, so the rummage crew start the process of searching the ship, and that's the bit that takes the time. So, the National Deep Rummage Team took over the search. Whoa, 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 whoa. There's a thing called the National Deep Rummage Team. Yeah, yeah, it's part of the government's border policing unit. <laughs> so, okay, so there are people with the job title Deep Rummager. 
Um, like that's yeah. on their card. They've yeah, got a yeah, business yeah. card with Deep Rummager. Well, they, that, they have to say, oh, hi, I'm a Deep Rummager in, at parties and stuff. For goodness sake, Steve, yes, there's a Deep Rummage team. That's <laughs> amazing. Anyway, I'm getting on with the story. It's not going well. They searched for hours and found nothing. John's 24 hours became eight, became four. It's quarter to 11. They've got 15 minutes before they have to release the suspected smugglers. All that work would have been for nothing. So I'm, I'm sat in my office panicking. Mm-hmm. I'm, I'm going to have to release these people and I'm being told there must be drugs on that boat, but I haven't found them. Mm. Uh, when the Border Force guys put a drill through the steel plate and when they pulled the drill back out, the drill bit was covered in white cocaine. Wow. Uh, oh, my God. So this is minutes to 11 here. On this was bang on 11 o'clock. Just in the nick of time. They eventually found 3.2 tonnes of cocaine. To put that into perspective, that was almost as much as they had seized the entire previous year in one day. The biggest cocaine seizure ever in the UK. The street value, as calculated for if it was sold in Scotland at that time, was £512 million. They stopped £512 million worth of drugs getting onto the streets. Wow, so that is a lot of money. Surely that is good news for the government. Well, it might actually cost us in terms of GDP, because strangely enough, the drugs trade is actually included in our measure of economic output, which we call GDP. Wait, who's that? Oh, sorry, uh, that's Jonathan Athal from the Office of National Statistics. Um, He's like my personal economics Siri. Uh, I can pretty much get him to do anything. See, look, uh, Jonathan, give us a tongue twister. Peter Piper picked a pickled pepper or something like that. He's better at stats, to be fair. We shouldn't take the mick, though. He's actually the Deputy National Statistician at the Office for National Statistics. He told me that the figure we hear on the news, GDP, actually includes the sale of drugs. So because they've been taken off the streets, they can't be sold and can't contribute to GDP. So GDP would be lower that year. But the government tell us not to do drugs. So why on earth are they counting it in their official stats? GDP is designed to be internationally comparable. And in some countries, certain drugs are legal. And to avoid there being a distortion between the countries where it's legal and where it's illegal, we count drugs that are illegal in the UK in GDP. So we just don't want Holland to have an advantage over us, basically. Exactly. You know, we want comparability. So in some ways, ONS do not care about the law. Well, we do care about, uh, do care about the law. We know these things are illegal. And it actually makes measuring the trade in illegal drugs very, very difficult because nobody's reporting this in their annual accounts. No, I don't tell my accountant ever. How do you calculate the drugs? Is there someone at the ONS doing a survey of drug dealers to check their prices? There are quite a lot of surveys about drug use that have been done. And we can plot trends in whether drug uh, use is going up or going down. We then look at what use of drugs there is and we look at evidence on what prices drugs are sold for. And we can therefore work out what the total value of that drugs trade is. But it's a pretty small amount. We're only talking a few billion pounds here out of a total GDP of £2,000 billion. So it seems that the only thing that drug use is healthy for is GDP. But what exactly is GDP? GDP measures the economic activity in a country. So it's the sort of total value of the output of all the goods and services that are produced in a particular country. So it's all the output of factories, offices, shops, but also the services you buy, whether it's insurance or restaurant meals. We count everything. 
So out of interest, I'm a stand-up comedian. How would you quantify my value to the economy? So your value would if be... If any. Well, uh, I, I leave the market to determine that. Um, <laughs> uh, so uh, your value to the economy is we'd look at the amount of tickets you sold. Millions. You know, maybe you clear £100 of tickets. And then what we'd do is we'd look at the cost to you of actually putting on that show. So maybe you're having to pay to be at the venue and you may have to pay your travel costs. So we look at the total amount of ticket sales minus the costs you incur, and that's how we then calculate GDP. It's the gap between those two. I see. So that's really interesting. So it's not just all the prices added together in total. It's the extra bits. It's it, the, it, yes, the value. Exa- exactly. Sometimes we, we call it value added because it's what you produce less the inputs you need to, to make it. And that way we avoid double counting. So GDP is what we make minus the cost of making it. So the bits we've added. Now, to make sure that they are just focusing on an increase in making stuff, not a price increase, they use a deflator to take out the effects of inflation. And that gives you real GDP. Once they've got this figure, though, what's the point of it? It helps us understand how much tax we might get from the economy. Because all those transactions, you know, if you buy coffee or you buy goods in the shops, that's where VAT is levied, value-added tax is levied. So GDP really helps us understand how much tax we're going to get and therefore how much the government can spend on services like health and education. So as a rule, if GDP is going up, that's, that's a good thing. In, indeed. It means there's often going to be more resources for us to enjoy. So that could be giving more, more money to people who are working, higher wages. Um, but it also means more GDP often means more taxes. Uh, More taxes means there's more money for the government to spend on the NHS, on education and on things like that. Okay. Now, confusingly, I also see GNP. Is that just a spelling mistake or is that a real thing? GDP is about the output of uh, the economy. But sometimes those outputs are not produced by British companies. So it might be that uh, you are a Japanese car company and you have a, a factory in the UK. You're producing output here. But a lot of that profit, it might go back to Japan. So GNP corrects for that. It says how much of that income stays in the UK and how much goes overseas. So GNP is the more patriotic of the measures. It's the one the UKIP would prefer. It's, uh, you can't expect me to comment on political issues, but it, it tells you what's going on. People or businesses, who's the ultimate beneficiary of that economic activity? Now, for the UK, it doesn't make much of a difference. Um, If you were to take Ireland, for example, Ireland's got lots of multinational companies that have invested in Ireland. So the difference between GDP and GNP is really quite big for Ireland. GNP is 20% smaller than GDP. I see. And a lot of the money goes out of Ireland. Because they've got really big investment into Ireland by big multinational companies lots of that profit then goes out of Ireland. And for them, GNP is quite important because that tells you how much money has basically ended up in Ireland, either in Irish companies in terms of profits or paid to workers. So where did this measure, GDP, actually come from? To understand what it's useful for, and crucially what it doesn't tell us, we need to go back in time. I'm going to take you back to the 1930s. We're in New York and we're living through the Great Depression. Booze is banned, times are tough, but cheeseburgers only cost a nickel. 
Meanwhile, an economist named Simon Kuznets is working away trying to find a measure for the economy that might help us out of the depression. Simon Kuznets was an economist who um, moved to the United States early in the 20th century and started work on figuring out how to measure the economy as a whole. That's Professor Diane Coyle of Cambridge University and author of GDP, A Brief But Affectionate History. Aww. Yeah. He started out by saying, I'm going to try to measure what's actually productive in some meaningful sense, you know, what makes us truly better off. And he started out on that task. Previously, there'd been lots of statistics, how many miles of railway, how much iron was being uh, created and so on, but nobody tried to add it together until he started. And then the Second World War came along. And Keynes, very influential, John Maynard Keynes, a famous British economist, got really frustrated because he said, I don't need to know about how much well-being there is because there's a war and that's not great for well-being. What I need to know is how much can the economy produce and how much of that, if people consume the bare minimum that they need, they've got enough food, they've got some clothes, what's the bare minimum that they consume and what does that leave over for fighting the war, for making tanks and artillery and so on? So that was the kind of calculation that he needed and it's a different calculation. In the middle of a war, war effort trumps everything else and so that approach became the way it was done. Then after the war, the US was giving aid to countries to help them rebuild. The Americans wanted to know how well the recipients of the aid were doing, so they all started using GDP. This Anglo-American initiative, because they were the victors in the war, became the way that all countries did it afterwards, and it worked through the United Nations. So the UN worked on a global standard, and this measure spread around the world. Was Simon Kuznets proud? No, he didn't approve, and he was pretty clear about that. It got hijacked from his original intention. He thought it should be a measure of what we would call economic welfare, you know, is it making us better off or not? Are we getting better off? Is there some kind of economic progress in some sense? And it got turned into just a measure of the activity going on in the economy. And the difference is there's lots of stuff going on in the economy that isn't good stuff. Um, you know, we pay for policing in the courts. And if that goes up, that's not really a good thing for society if there's more crime happening and you've got to pay lawyers and policemen for it. So all of those things got added in and he strongly felt that they should not be. And that's actually a kind of split that has continued ever since, this debate about do we want to measure well-being or welfare in some fundamental sense or do we just want to measure economic activity? Despite the split, GDP stuck and it was spread around the world as the number one way of measuring economic activity. Nowadays, it's all politicians talk about. It's held up as one number that can tell you everything that you need to know about a country. It's become the benchmark, and all politicians want is to get their country's GDP higher and higher and higher, so that they can say their economy is growing. Growth is everything to politicians, and they can't shut up about it. It's almost like it's become the basis of their entire language. The action we're taking to restore growth... Well, it's good news the economy continues to grow. We are now seeing growth in our economy. In support of economic growth, drive economic growth, increase economic growth. It's easy as GDP. 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 This latest GDP number. It's easy as GDP. 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 
to deliver prosperity and growth for the benefit of all our people. I think we've got a hit. That's it. David Pilling is a journalist at the Financial Times and they bloody love talking about GDP at that place. David, uh, now you're here to tell us some stuff about the problems with GDP. Um, a few years ago, you were sent to Tokyo for work. That's right. Yeah, I was the correspondent in Tokyo from 2002 to 2008. And before you went to Tokyo, what were people saying about Japan's GDP? Well, the G- GDP hadn't moved for years and years. So people thought, what on earth had gone wrong with the economy? Here was Japan that was going to take over America. Then it kind of crashed. And then GDP never, ever recovered. In fact, you know, it's, if it was a graph, it would be a flat line. So if you know Japan were a patient, it would be, it would be dead if it were a heart patient. Wow. Bloody hell. Poor Japan. I know. So what were you expecting to see when you got there? Homeless people, people being depressed, uh, shuttered streets. Um, What I saw, I mean, I was in Tokyo, but I travelled all around the country, was in many senses an extraordinarily vibrant, a very wealthy, sophisticated uh, economy that looked far richer than Britain to me and to many people. I mean, a politician came over and said, David, if this is a recession, I want one. Um, And that was very much what I thought. Now, I'm not claiming that, you know, everything was perfect in Japan. But what I am saying is that the expectations that um, looking at Japan through the prism of GDP would set up really didn't accord with reality in any way. This did not feel like a depressed economy that was going nowhere. Did you discover the Japanese toilets? I did indeed. They're incredible, aren't they? I think they're the best thing in the world. I don't know anything about this. Why are they so special? Well, well, David well they have all sorts of nozzles and sprays. They're heated. I mean, you know, in Britain, we, we sit on the toilet seat and it's not heated. I mean, I've, you know, what, what kind of age are we living in? Exactly. They've got flatline GDP, but they've got warm bums. Oh. I know what I prefer. Yeah. All right. So, so far, it actually seems like that's the place that we should be. So what other things did you see in Tokyo that made you think that GDP wasn't reflective? I mean, GDP is very bad at quality. It's excellent at quantity, things you can drop on your foot. So the quality of things in Japan are amazing. The quality of the food, the quality of the service. Let's take the quality of the trains. So you have Shinkansen bullet trains that run to a timetable over a quarter of a second. Their delays are less than a second over over the year. And they're also travelling at twice the speed. This had been possible to imagine in Britain, and yet their contribution to GDP was no more because it's just what it costs to get on the train. That's the only contribution. There's no adjustment for the quality. So a British clapped-out train that breaks down and you all have to get in an emergency bus or whatever is contributing as much to GDP as is a Shinkansen bullet train that works to an impeccable timetable. So I say, why? What What is actually you know, what is contributing to the quality of our life? And for my money, and obviously it's a subjective thing, but for my money, the quality of people's lives in many ways were much, much better. And chatting to people there, did they seem happier? Were they like aware of this? You know, I think that's that's very complicated to try and gauge people's happiness. I mean, you could easily counter to me, well, suicide rates are high in Japan. That is true. Mm. I can't really argue against that. Um, people were certainly used to what I would say are kind of a higher standard of living, as I would call it, on a day-to-day basis, as judged by quality, efficiency, you know, in some ways kind of fun. I mean, restaurants open until 3, 4 a.m. in Japan. You know, London right. closes up shop very early, as far as I'm concerned. You know, so in, in terms of convenience, possibility, fun, I would say that Japan is a much funner place. Yeah, but that, the, the number that we're seeing, the GDP, just isn't reflecting the, the better experience they're maybe having. I, I think not at all. We're putting too much store in this measure, and this measure is not really reflecting reality. So, David, what is wrong with GDP? 
Well, it doesn't distinguish between good economic activity and bad economic activity. So to GDP producing something that we can all agree is a, is a good thing. You know, this radio program, for example, yeah. uh, counts just as much as, uh, as, as heroin or bullets for a gun. And we are far better than heroin. Mm. <laughs> I wouldn't know. I wouldn't be able to make a comparison. Oh. So what does GDP not cover? Well, GDP is gross domestic product. So the clue is in the name, really. It's gross. It's, gross. it's not <laughs> net. It counts everything. So you can spew out any number of things. You could make cars that collapse next year. So you have to buy another car. That's good for GDP. Recycling using stuff as much as you possibly can, is bad for GDP because you don't have to make it again and again and again. I mean, economics is a funny discipline. There's a, a, a novelist, uh, Jonathan Franzen, who's one of his characters, says, you know, economics is the only discipline where endless growth is considered a good thing. In biology, there's a word for that, but it's cancer. Mm. Um, and yet economics... We're just, we're just expected to produce more, consume more, produce more, consume more in this ever sort of escalating cycle. And if we're not doing that, then somehow we're damaging the economy. But the economy is us. The economy is what we choose it to be. The economy might be more leisure time. It might be that we want to live longer. It might be we want to be healthier. It might be we want to cleaner air. Uh, but unless we measure that, we're in danger of pursuing this one measure of our supposed success to the detriment of other things. So in short, GDP just doesn't measure our impact on the environment. So what else is GDP missing? Well, as we've heard, GDP counts transactions for which money changes hands. So heroin, for example. But if you're looking after your grandmother or, or your grandchild and you're not charging for it, that doesn't count to GDP at all. So voluntary work, care at home. And there's also a question there, of course, about how who's more likely to be doing that kind of work and then what that says about who's, whose labour is valued in our society, right? Absolutely. Who cooked Ad Adam Smith's dinner? It was Adam Smith's mother, which gave him the leisure time to be able to write all about the invisible hand of economics. The invisible hand uh, turned out to be female. <laughs> was his mother. Um, was his mother, yeah. So, of course, we've downgraded, you know, household production, economists call it, looking after kids, driving kids to school, making meals, etc., etc. And that work has, in the past, predominantly been done by women because we value housework, as it was always called, at precisely zero. Mm, absolutely. So at the moment, GDP considers that unpaid work with, as no economic value. Yes. Is there anything else that GDP is missing? Because it seems to be missing a lot. It's not really doing its job very well. Well, GDP is an aggregate. So it's all human activity compressed into one number. So there's nothing in GDP about distribution. Uh, there's an economist joke. Uh, being an economist joke, of course, is not very funny. But it goes like this. Bill Gates walks into a bar. On average, everyone in the room is a billionaire. Uh, but that, of course, tells you nothing about how much uh, most people earn. It just tells you about Bill Gates's earnings spread between everybody. So GDP, crucially, doesn't tell us anything about distribution. And distribution, of course, is one of the themes of our age. We know that median household income in the US has got stuck at kind of 1980s levels. People are not getting any wealthier, certainly people who don't have college degrees. So a lot of the growth, um, that's all going to one section of society. It's going to the top 1%, maybe even the top 0.1%. So what good is that for society as a whole? So to boil all this down then, why does what we choose to measure matter? Generally, we, we measure things that we care about. And um, if you don't measure something, then the likelihood is that you're not going to care about it in public policy. So what governments measure 
help set their policies, if they set a, a measure that they were going to increase our life expectancy, then presumably they put more resources into their national health. So there's quite a few things missing from GDP. I suppose it's like a human. If you wanted to know how healthy a human was, you wouldn't just look at their height. You'd also look at their weight, maybe their teeth. You'd ask them how they feel. GDP is just one measure for how a country's economy is doing and whether it's growing in the right way. Yeah, I mean, there's loads of ways that a country can improve. Like, if there were fewer annoying people, that would be a better country, wouldn't it? Like, where are the stats on that? Like, a country would be a better place if there were fewer people who asked to borrow a pen and then never gave it back. Or if there was a reduction in the number of people who take more than two crisps when you offer them. Yeah, yeah. Or a reduction in the number of people who sit next to you on a bus despite there being plenty of other seats. I hate those people. Yeah, the worst. And if we got rid of all the people who constantly misuse the word literally at the beginning of sentences. Oh, that's literally the most annoying thing in the world. Yeah, I know. GDP doesn't tell you any of those things, and it doesn't tell you whether the gains from growth are spread equally or whether we're growing at the expense of our environment. What should we be looking at then? Catherine Colebrook is chief economist at the centre-left think tank, the Institute for Public Policy Research, and she's got a proposal. So what we wanted to do is create what you might consider to be a dashboard of five indicators, a bit like a car dashboard where you've got lots of different metrics in different dimensions um, to try and get at how well the economy is delivering its outcomes for people. So, for instance, how well it's distributing the gains from growth, how well different regions are benefiting from growth, whether the economy is making people feel good about their lives and what levels of well-being are, and how well we're doing at reducing our carbon footprint and reducing our impact on, on the environment. Catherine Colebrook and IPPR would like to see the Chancellor of the Exchequer report on these five measures when they get up to give their yearly report on the economy and not just GDP. She said this would encourage the government to spend more money helping certain people or parts of the UK than they are now. So David Pilling, uh, Catherine talked about there being five dials on like a dashboard to measure the economy. Do you think that that could work? It could work, yeah. I mean, the point is you can't have too many or people get confused because you could measure, you know, annoying people who take too many crisps or whatever and all that to be important as income and life expectancy. So you need to kind of, which it is, (laughs) in your opinion, but not in mine. So, I mean, I almost think that this is a political process and what you need to do is have different political parties saying, we'd measure these four or five things and deliver on those. And someone else would say, we'd and measure these four or five things and deliver on those because one party might think equality was more important for itself and another might think, no, it's not. Actually, some inequality is good because it incentivizes people. But the point is that if you put it forward as a proposition against which you will be measured, uh, then I think everyone's kind of clearer on, on where we're trying to go as a society and how you hold politicians and public servants to account. And if I have one message, it's that really we should know what's in GDP and what's not in it. What is our standard measure of the economy? And we should have a certain kind of cynicism and a certain realism um, and then kind of think about other things that around that that we might actually care about, like how long we live, how healthy we are, how evenly our wealth is distributed um, among classes, if you want to call them that, and around the country in terms of regions. Um, And if we care about those things, then we should begin to measure them so that we can see how we're doing. How you son? You make the team as you. They say you weren't tall enough. Isn't that gold? Yeah, we're going to cook this Sunday, okay? So... 
GDP adds up everything that's made in the economy. There's also GMP for all you patriots out there. And now if GDP goes up, that's growth and our economy is growing. But GDP doesn't tell us everything. It doesn't tell us about the stuff that we do for free that's vital to our economy, like looking after your kids. It also doesn't tell us anything about what's driving the growth and at what cost. Is it being caused by people taking more drugs? Are we just cutting down loads of trees? And it doesn't tell us who's benefiting the most and who's being left behind. When it comes to GDP, not everything that counts can be counted. Coming up next time on Economics with Subtitles. Who does the government actually owe money to? Why a mum from Essex sent the government her bracelet. And what would happen if there was no government debt? That's next week on Economics with Subtitles. Your everyday guide to economics and why you should care. Economics with Subtitles was presented by Aisha Thomas-Smith and me, Steve Bougea. It was produced by Simon Mabin and Phoebe Keane. If you liked it, tell your mates.